Let's take our Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, in which the prophet uh, now begins the task of applying the great commission that he'd been given after his encounter with God. You may remember that in chapter 6, Isaiah tells us that in the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord high and exalted. He saw the sovereign. He saw the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that just about undid him. He found himself coming apart because in the presence of the thrice holy God, he recognizes, as we all do in the presence of God, that we are sinners and fall short of God's glory. And yet, in that experience, he discovered God to be a God of holy love, not simply holy, but holy love, not simply love, but holy love. And the holiness of God that exposed his sin is caught up in the expression of holiness that reaches out to him and cleanses him and makes it possible for Isaiah to be a vehicle of the Word of God. But what a word it is. It's not a very wonderful, uh, great commission for Isaiah. He's told to go back to his own people and to preach Uh, But he's told the effect of his preaching is the effect of his preaching will not be to cause a response or bring revival or renewal or quickening or new life, but rather the opposite. The effect of his preaching will be to harden even further the already hardened hearts of the people of Judah. Make the heart of this people dull, says God, their ears heavy, blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now we see the application of that frightening great commission. Isaiah is sent immediately to the king, to Ahaz, the son of Jotham, who reigned in Judah. We saw that last time as uh, the threat of two mini-kingdoms to the north Israel, or Ephraim as it's sometimes called, representing the ten tribes of Israel that had separated about 200 years before, and Syria just to the north and east of Israel. These two had come together, and they are assaulting little Judah to the south. And Ahaz the king is terrified. And we find him in the opening part of this chapter out by the water supply, checking whether or not there's enough water and whether they can get this water into the city in case of a siege. It's a military maneuver. It's a practical maneuver. But it's a maneuver, as Isaiah exposes, born out of unbelief. And so the big issue at the beginning of this passage is, will Ahaz, who is an occupant of the house of David, that is, in the royal family, will Ahaz trust God? Will he believe the promises of God? God comes to him through Isaiah, and Isaiah says to him, this is God's word to you, Ahaz. You're afraid, you're terrified that somehow or other these two little kingdoms, Syria and Ephraim, are going to spell the end of Judah. You're afraid, you're afraid of their circumstances, and you're afraid that in these circumstances, their threat to you imposes a threat on Jerusalem. 
And I'm here to tell you, to give you the Word of God to say to you, God will not let that happen. He will not let that happen. These two little kingdoms are themselves going to be destroyed. Israel or Ephraim will vanish altogether, and Syria will be left barren. Don't worry. Be happy. Trust God. That was summary of Isaiah's message. You can see in verse 9 how it's put, if you are not firm in faith, then you will not be firm at all. Believe. What are you panicking for? Do you trust God or do you not trust God? We saw last time that that is God's Word always to us. Do you trust Him or do you not trust Him? If you're panicking, you're not trusting. If you're looking around for solutions, you're not trusting. If you're not firm in faith, you are not firm at all. Now we move on in the conversation. We come to verse 10, and this time we hear three voices. We hear, first of all, the Lord's voice. The Lord speaks again. Yahweh, the Lord, spoke to Ahaz. You might have expected it to say, Isaiah resumed the conversation. And of course, it is Isaiah. It is Isaiah who's actually physically there speaking to Ahaz. But in the reporting of what's going on, it's quite deliberate in underscoring the fact that when Isaiah speaks to Ahaz, it is the Lord, it is Yahweh who is speaking to him. He is not speaking as a private person. This is how the prophets saw themselves. The prophets saw themselves not as speaking for themselves. They saw themselves not even speaking what they'd been told to speak. When the prophets spoke, they understood that when they spoke, God spoke. As uh, John Oswald puts it in his commentary, Isaiah did not simply claim to speak about God, but to speak for God. And there's a sense in which, as God's mouthpiece, he spoke as God. In such a way that God remained God, Isaiah remained Isaiah, their nature, their character, their distinction remains intact, but nonetheless, the God who transcends space and time and history works by his Spirit so that when Isaiah speaks, the Lord speaks. This is what the New Testament confirms in Second Peter chapter 1, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along, borne along by the Holy Spirit. So the God who spoke through Isaiah is speaking directly to Ahaz. And what is he saying to Ahaz? He is offering him something. You notice that in verse 11. The Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of Yahweh, your God. Ask a sign. He's inviting him, you notice, to test him. He's saying, Ahaz, you don't believe what my prophet has just told you. Nor do you believe what you should have understood from my experiences with Israel over these years if you'd only thought about the fact that you belong to the house of David. When my prophet spoke to you, he reminded you, you belong to the house of David. Remember David. Remember when David was a little boy, you remember how he stood up to the giant? You remember how with one stone, the first of his five that he chose, with one stone he felled the giant, and the whole army of the Philistines was thrown into confusion. Why? Because I was with him. Ahaz, you should know that. 
you should know that this is the way it works. But I understand that perhaps a sign would shore up your faith. So ask a sign. It could be anything. You can ask for a meteor to fall from heaven, or the sun to be obscured in midday. You can ask for anything you want, anything. It's up to you. You name it, I'll do it as a sign to you representing the house of David. I want you to notice this is a sincere offer by God. It's an offer of life to this man, because as we see, as we've already seen in verse 9, this is a matter of life and death for this man. If you are not firm in faith, God had said through Isaiah, you are not firm at all. You're not established. You won't stand. It was a matter of life and death. Now, throughout the biblical record, God has from time to time demonstrated His existence and encouraged His people's faith through signs and wonders. That was by no means God's normal way of working. That's true. And the faith that requires signs in Scripture is not the strongest kind of faith. But now and then, God does this. Sometimes these are miraculous, such as the rescue from Egypt or the feeding of the 5,000. In all cases, these signs are evidentiary, because faith is always based on facts. Faith is always built on realities, on, on things that have happened, on history. As Franz Delitzsch says in his commentary, signs authenticate divine causality retrospectively. That is, looking back, we can see God has caused this to happen because of the sign. Or divine certainty prospectively. The signs point to what God is going to do with certainty in the future. That was the place of signs. So God comes. The Lord comes directly to this man. He speaks to him through his servant, the prophet. He says, you name it, I'll do it to prove my word to you. And you notice, do you notice the sincerity of this office? You notice how God introduces himself. Ask a sign of Yahweh. Your God. Your God. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God of Moses and Samuel and David, your God, the God who has been with your family from the very beginning. This was a sincere offer of God. The Lord speaks. Then the king speaks. Look at verse 12. But Ahaz said, and behind the king's reaction, we see him speaking in a way that veils his unbelief in the language of piety. Ahaz says, I will not ask, and I will not put Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, to the test. Now, of course, what he's doing is he's raising a real spiritual issue. It is possible to test the Lord. That, that is a possibility we find all through the Scriptures. The Israel's, Israelites have done that throughout their history. The old story of the of the exodus from Egypt and their journey for 40 years in the wilderness was a demonstration of their unbelief in God and their regular calling for signs. And it's the most remarkable thing. Because if you'd been with those Israelis, those Israelites in the desert for those 40 years, and you'd lived with them every night when they pitched their tent and they went into their tent, as they glanced back before they went to their bed, they would see in the center of the camp this great pillar of fire resting over the tabernacle. Every night, every night, 
before they went to bed as a sign of the continuing presence of God among them. Every morning when they came out of their tent, they would see the pillar of cloud in the daylight resting over the tabernacle, and they would go to the outskirts of the camp, and there would be every morning manna, manna provided by God, and they'd gather the manna, and they'd take it home, and they'd make the manna bread or something, whatever you do with manna. In other words, regularly, all the time, they were confronted with the reality of the supernatural presence of a supernatural God. And yet, in spite of that, over and over again, they would go to Moses and they'd say, Moses, why have you brought us into this? Why are we in this state? Why are we in the trouble we are in? Show us something. Show us something from God. Do something to prove that God is with us in this situation. And they tested the Lord. So, Ahaz has a theological background, you see, for saying this. Ahaz says, I will not ask, I will not test the Lord your God. In fact, he could, he could produce the Bible verse to support his position. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that's precisely what the devil wants to do to Jesus. You remember, in the wilderness, again, He wants Jesus to do what Israel had done, put the Lord your God to the test. And Jesus responds by quoting those very words from Deuteronomy. He rebukes the devil and says, I will not test the Lord. But you see, Ahaz's words are empty words. That was not the issue. Here is the Lord himself, Yahweh, who had come to him, who had reminded him that he was this man Ahaz's God, and he had come offering a sign. In fact, he actually orders him to ask a sign of Yahweh, his God. God is not inviting. He is saying, ask me for a sign. When God comes to us, generally speaking, he's not entering into a a discussion. He is giving us his word, and that's what he's doing with this man. And so to refuse the sign was not an indication of this man's superior spirituality and piety. To refuse the sign was, in fact, an indication that he did not want God to prove himself. He'd already made up his mind. We know from other scriptures what he'd made up his mind to do. He'd made up his mind to go to Assyria, this great and growing power to the northeast in the Iraq area that was that was emerging and was growing in strength day by day, and at the moment was still focusing its attention on areas to the east of it and away from little Judah. And it was in the mind of Ahaz that if I'm going to resist these two little northern kingdoms, Ephraim and Syria, I need a bigger power on my side. And he'd already decided, he'd already made up his mind that he wasn't going to risk everything on God. He was not going to risk everything in the Word of God. He was not going to risk the safe being, the safe, the well-being and safety of his little kingdom into the hands of a God he could not see. And he would look elsewhere. He would resolve the issue elsewhere. He would come up with a solution to the Ephraim Syria problem himself. And he would fail in faith. This decision of his 
is absolutely pivotal in the story of Judah. One of the reasons why, as we will notice in a moment in verse 13, when the prophet goes on to say, Here then, O house of David, he's getting very formal as he talks to Ahaz. Ahaz is the current representative of the house of David. He's, he's the leader that's in position at that time. And when he decides he's not going to trust God and he's not going to accept God's offer of a sign, this is going to be absolutely pivotal. It is the turning point in the fortunes of the house of David. It's going to spell the end. Although it may take a few years to work its way out, it's going to spell the end of a son of David on the throne of Judah in any political sense. It will be the end. Because this man is going to not only turn his back on God, he's going to go to the Assyrians and get this, when he goes to the Assyrians, he's going to have to do several things. He's going to enter into a covenant with Assyria, breaking the covenant with God. He's going to be recognizing Assyria's gods as his gods, and he's going to be subservient to Assyria's king as his son and servant. This was Ahaz's moment of decision. And many scholars see this decision and Ahaz's reply as the final turning point in the story of David's house. You see, going and checking your water supply if you're afraid of a siege is the normal, natural, human thing to do if you're the king of any other kingdom in the world. But going out and checking your water supply and making ready for the siege is not the response of someone who comes from the house of David and believes as David believed in the Lord God of Israel, who has already said to you clearly by his prophet, the siege will not happen. The issue, believe God or not. Believe God or not. And so thirdly, we hear the prophet speaking. All this politicking was playing fast and loose with God, and he will have no more of it. And he said, now it's the prophet, and God is speaking through the prophet. Hear then, O house of David. This is the formal aspect of this word. Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little a thing for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Do you see what's changed? The Lord spoke to Ahaz, verse 10. The Lord is now addressing the house of Israel, verse 13. The, the Lord spoke to Ahaz and said, Ask a sign of Yahweh your God. But now the prophet is speaking to him, and you notice, no longer is he addressed as your God or is he described as your God, but rather as my God. God is distancing Himself from the house of David. He is distancing Himself from this man Ahaz. This man Ahaz has crossed a line. What has happened is that God is patient, but His patience will not last forever. God is just, but in mercy He holds back the floodgates of His judgment, but He will not hold back those floodgates forever. 
God is a God full of steadfast love and mercy towards men and women. And every day we wake up to a new day. That is a new day of mercy. It's a day of grace. It's a day of opportunity. It's a day in which God says to us, today, if you hear my voice, don't harden your hearts. But it will not last forever. It will not last forever. Today is all you have to hear His voice. Today is all you have to listen to the Word of God. Don't harden your hearts. Or you may find God hardens it irreparably. What does God say through the prophet? The Lord, no longer Yahweh, by the way, do you notice? But now it's Adonai. It is the Lord in the sense of the sovereign king, the omnipotent one. No longer the God of covenant commitment and steadfast love, but the God of absolute sovereignty, the Lord himself, will give you a sign. You were offered one. It would have happened right now. In your life, the meteor would fall, the dead would be raised, the sea would be parted, whatever it would be, whatever it would take to convince you that God is Lord. It would have happened right now in front of your eyes, Ahaz. But God's going to give you a sign, and He'll choose when it comes to pass. It's no longer a matter of invitation, it's a matter of prediction. He'd been offered a sign from Yahweh, His God, no more. This sign is imposed. This sign will not be fulfilled in his lifetime. This sign is not a sign of salvation. It is a sign of judgment. This sign holds out no mercy. This sign spells rejection. And the sign presages disaster. Disaster for Judah and for Israel. And chaos. And famine conditions and deportation, and foreign invasion, and occupation. But the sign does have one good sign to it, good side to it. Here's the sign. Behold, behold. Wherever that word is used, it often comes as before an announcement of huge significance, and often the announcement of a hugely significant birth. Behold, Behold, the virgin shall conceive. He uses a word here that's sometimes translated a maiden or a damsel, never used of a married woman. There was another word he could have used, a word for a young woman, a word that's used, for example, in Genesis 24, when a servant is sent out to find a wife for Isaac. He goes out he finds a young woman, using the second word. But this second word is always modified. He found Rebecca, and she was a young woman who had had no sexual relationships with a man. That's what he says. In other words, that second word is always modified with a phrase explaining whether or not that young woman was a virgin or not. And when this servant returns to Abraham with the news, he doesn't use that second word. He goes and he uses the word that we have here, the word Alma. And he says, Rebecca's a virgin. A virgin 
will conceive. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that it has to be something totally out of the ordinary. This is an out-of-the-ordinary sign. I mean, Ahaz lived in a royal palace, and he had had concubines and wives and stuff, and they were producing babies, popping them out all the time. I mean, there was nothing special about a woman having a child. That that would never have rung any bells. In fact, the scholars who who feel that there must have been something in, in Ahaz's day and age that this referred to, come up with all kinds of ideas. Was it one of Ahaz's sons or Isaiah's sons? Or was it Hezekiah, who's a teenager by this stage? Or is it that there were a plethora of people having babies at that time and the in-name became Emmanuel? People were just calling their sons Emmanuel all over the place. Was that what it was? But one of the things I've noticed in all these commentaries is that nobody can agree what the present contemporary sign was. There's no indication in the text what it was, which is unusual because Isaiah, Isaiah's modus operandi, his M.O. is that he is very confident in God giving a promise or a prophecy and then it being fulfilled, and he'll direct your attention to how it was fulfilled. But he doesn't do that with this promise. Why? Because this promise is a judgment. On Ahaz, he will not see it fulfilled in his lifetime. It's kind of, you ask for a sign that you could see that would build faith, I'm going to give you a sign that will just harden your heart all the more. The virgin will conceive and bring a son. It's a royal language. He's just pronounced the end of the house of David, but but there's going to be in the future, a virgin that will conceive and bring forth a royal son. And when that child is born, he will be born of the virgin. But not only that, he will be born into circumstances that will be the direct result of the decision that Ahaz has made. Because of the hardening of his heart, because of this decision of unbelief that he has made, there is going to be an invasion ultimately an invasion of Assyria, we'll see, and devastation to Judah. And that devastation, that exile for the people of God, will remain in place even after people have come back from Babylon to Palestine. It will remain in place. And when this child becomes conscious of the world around it. It will become conscious of a world around it that is occupied by foreign powers. That's what verse 17 or 16 and 17 is telling you, 16 particularly. When that child becomes conscious of the world in which he's living, he'll look northwards towards Ephraim and there'll be no king, no king of northern Israel because there will be no northern Israel. And when he looks at the Judah that he lives in, he will see no Davidite on the throne, just sign of some trumped-up upstart called Herod, who had no Davidite credentials sitting on the throne. The two kings, no kings in the sense that Ahaz is aware of them in his time. It will all be gone, all be done for. And we know from, of course, history that when the Messiah was born, he was born into a land occupied by the Romans. What 
what Ahaz's unbelief initiated was a movement in which first Assyria, and then Babylon, and then Medo-Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome would occupy Jerusalem and Judah. It was a sobering word. But in the midst of this word, there is this amazing prophecy. Though this may spell the end of human leaders on a political throne of Judah, and it may take a few years for that to work out into practice until the, the, the deportation into Babylon, but his action has spelt the end of that. God has not forgotten his promise. He has not forgotten that he said there would be a ruler on David's throne who would rule forever. And he says, this is the sign. After the aftermath of your decision, in days when Palestine is occupied, in days when the kingship has fallen out of the hands of the, of the Davidites and, and fallen out of the hands of Israel when Israel is actually no more existing, extinct. A child will be born, a son, will be born of a virgin, and he'll be called Emmanuel. Now, we come to this passage, of course, and we do so, and this is the right way to do so as Christians, through the New Testament revelation that confirms the interpretation that we have just shown, because Matthew records the angel's announcement to Joseph of Mary's pregnancy and talks about the coming of her child, who is the one who will bring salvation to the world. In other words, you see, this is the whole argument that God has been having with this man Ahaz. If you trust God, God will be the Savior. He'll come as the Savior. He'll come to rescue you. You don't have to find alternative means of rescue or salvation. God will turn up, and He will rescue you. And in the days of Joseph, that is precisely the angel's announcement. And then the angel explains, and here is the angel's explanation. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Then in verse 17, Isaiah gets really worked up as he's talking to the king. Yahweh will bring upon you and upon your people, upon your father's house, such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim, northern Israel, departed from Judah, severing the kingdom in two. Here's his punchline. Guess who will do it for you? Who is it you're thinking of having an alliance with? Who is it you're thinking of putting your trust in? Who is it that you think is more reliable than God? Assyria. That's where you're looking for help. That's where you're looking for a resolution and solution to this problem. Assyria will turn and bite you in the end. Because here's the principle, you see. Here is this biblical principle in the prophets. Whatever a person trusts in, in place of God, will one day turn and bite you. Wherever you put your confidence 
in whomever you put your confidence, that is in place of God, will one day turn and bite you. That's what the prophet is saying to this man. Don't be so foolish. God has ordained it. You're looking here and there, and you're dismissing God, and you're not putting your trust and your faith in God. Don't trust Assyria. Trust God. Not long after Ahaz's time, there was no more kingdom of David. And when the children of Israel came back from their captivity, things were not like they'd been before. For 600 years, for 600 years, people were asking the question, will there ever be a Davidite on the throne of Judah? Through the reign of the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, and the Greeks, and the Romans, Roman puppets were on the throne. But people waited, and they watched, and they wondered, until an angel came to Joseph and said to Joseph, Joseph, that boy that your wife carries of the Holy Spirit <clears throat> will be the fulfillment of the prophecy that Isaiah gave to Ahaz 620 years ago. And he won't just be called Emmanuel. He will be Emmanuel. He will be God with us. That is, God in our flesh. He will be God with us. That is, in the battle with us. He will be God with us. That is, with us to bless us. With us to support us. With us to secure us. With us to save us. With us to be our rescuer and our warrior God. Whenever we read those words, you call his name Emmanuel, we discover that God was thinking of us when he gave that sign of judgment to Ahaz. He was thinking of us needing a sign from God that God could keep his word through Isaiah to this rebellious king 620 years before Christ and make an accurate prediction that during a period of being occupied by a foreign power, a virgin would conceive and bring forth a child who would be God with us, Emmanuel. You can trust God's Word, in other words. You can trust His promises. You can trust Him to be God to you. Here is a sign for you this morning. Here is a sign to comfort your heart that this God in whom you trust is God alone. And cast all on Him. Cast all on Him, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus. Cast your everything on Him, and He will sustain you. He will comfort you. He will lift you up. He will win the battles for you. He will bring victory in the end. Let's pray. Father, we ask that in your grace you would give us confidence in the promises that you have given to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray in his strong name. Amen.